Okay, we're going to get started because as I was mentioning to a few people that punctuality is a love language of my husband's, so I always start on time. And we also have people that, usually we've got people filtering in, but that's okay. Hi, good morning. Um, as I mentioned there, my name is Liz Hammer. Glad you're here. This is not one of those topics that we all, I mean, we all wish we didn't need to attend a seminar like this. Um, but what I'd like to do when starting out is just to get to, I like putting um, faces and circumstances together. So we'll just say our names and what is your relationship to your wanderer? Is it your child, a grandchild, a sibling, or a parent, or whoever it is? If you don't currently have a, a loved one that you would say is in the wandering category, and you're just here for the information, Praise God, we're so delighted to have you as well. Um, so why don't we'll start over here and we'll work our way back and then we'll come and do this way over here. So, all right, well, a little bit about um, our story. This is my tribe, the Hammers. Um, some of them, if you've been around Mount Hermon for a while, you might have seen some of these people on summer staff. Um, our son, Eric, here on the end, he, uh, when he was on summer staff, he, was ranger in childcare, and he was also guarding your life down at the at the pool. Um, so he did a summer of lifeguarding as well. And then there's myself, and then down here in the front, this is our daughter Masha. Masha is working this summer in the dining room. That's why I get to be here all summer long, because she's working full time in the dining room. She is very proud of her serving skills. So if you happen to have coffee poured by Masha, um, please say thank you. You're doing a great job, and that will carry her through the week. She's, she's having a great summer. Um, the handsome gentleman in the back is my husband, Brian. He is the engine that makes our family go. Um, he has been coming in and out while we've been here at Mount Hermon, because Again, we live in LA, that's where the job is, but he's been working remotely a little bit. He's actually over in San Francisco right now. Um, so he's the one that allows me to do things like this, and I am so grateful. This little gal in the middle, that's the star of our family these days, right? Any of you have grandkids, you know. That is Haley. Haley just um, turned one in July, and she is in the arms of her dad, our oldest son, David. Um, if you had kids in day camp, five, six, eight years ago, he was Spike at day camp. He served there three summers, and that is where he met his beautiful wife, Anne, the girl in the blue dress there. Um, she was Winnie at day camp, um, and she is currently staying home with Haley. David works for a software company in Santa Barbara. Uh, oh yeah, and Eric is a real smarty pants. He is an accountant in a, with a firm in Santa Barbara. This handsome guy on the end, this is why I'm standing up here. Uh, that's our son, Kevin. He is also working for the same software company that David does um, in Santa Barbara. There is a running theme. All three of our boys live and work in Santa Barbara because they all went to Westmont College and stayed because why not, right? So, um, so Kevin is our wanderer. He's the one who just said, yeah, not so much anymore. Um, so I think in, as we share just you briefly, me longer, um, we're not alone in this story. And I think that does help those of us who are, have joined this club that we never would have chosen. And Mark referred to a lot of these clubs, um, the, the cancer club or the other dreadful diagnoses kind of clubs, the, the financial disaster club, 
um, the Divorce Club, the Wandering Loved Ones Club. This, these are all the clubs in life that nobody wants to sign up for, but we find ourselves members of. And so here in this room, we get to gather for a little moment um, as people who love those who have wandered from the Lord. Um, it's a pain-filled and prayerful journey that we're on, and so I wanna start our time together by uh, coming to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, while we don't want to be here because of the subject, we are glad that we can gather here to meet you and to get to know each other. And Lord, we would lift up this time. God, I pray that you would move through the words that uh, you have given to me. Um, move me out of the way, Lord, so that everything that happens here this morning is for our good, but ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to um, begin this seminar that will hopefully kind of set the stage or the expectations a little bit to make sure everything's real clear on what we're doing. The first thing I want to say is that I have Kevin's permission to share this story. Um, that's kind of public speaking 101, but it was a little um, interesting when I was, when God, this seminar has been about three years in the making. And I finally said to my husband, okay, I think I'm getting ready to write this, but I really can't even offer it until I talk to Kevin. And um, we've had some sweet conversations about this. When I told him, I said, you know, Kev, um, God's been teaching me a lot since your senior year of college when you decided that you were no longer gonna be following Jesus. And I said, you know what happens when God teaches me things? And he just starts laughing. And he just goes, oh, mom, I totally get where you're going with this. Yeah, you have my permission to share anything you wanna share. Awesome, great. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it, it is important to pay attention to how we speak about our loved ones. Um, when you're sharing your story about anything, your loved one's stories, they will intersect and become entwined and maybe kind of tangled up. So it, it can be a little tricky in how we're talking about our loved ones, but it's not um, insurmountable. It's just a challenge that we need to be paying attention. Um, in the telling of my story, I never want to diminish the heartache and the, the sadness that is around this, but I also have no desire to disparage my son or to in any way demean or, or diminish our relationship. Um, the second thing I would say, and I mentioned this in the auditorium, this is not a, a how-to or a fix-it seminar. Um, it, and we need to be careful with that. Our job is not to fix our wanderers. Our job is to be faithful to Jesus and to release our wanderers to him. Um, so that being said, the subject of this seminar is not really your wanderer. The subject of this seminar is Jesus and how our relationship with Jesus can really transform us as we're on this life journey with our wanderers. He wants to draw us closer to him through the circumstance of having this loved one who's wandered from him. So here's where we're going to go this morning. You guys got a little uh, handout that has a bit of this on it. The first thing we're gonna talk about is what is our response? And I've kind of narrowed it down to three main responses that we experience when we're on this journey with our loved one. Um, and I would say these responses tend to be the more, um, I used to call them negative because they're real, but not where we would wanna live. 
Then we're going to talk about where would we rather be, what's our landing pad, and to get over there, what happens in that middle space, okay? So that's kind of where we're going with your little flyer that you have there. How does God get us from there over to, over to the landing pad? Now, I would say there is a, probably a wide spectrum of wanderers, probably the, the number of people that are represented in this room, that every story is different and unique, um, but it's important to understand what that is because how our loved one is wandering sometimes dictates what's going on inside of me. Um, so just in no particular order, and this is by no means exhausted, exhaustive, um, I came up with three sort of categories, if you will, of ways to wander. For some, you are encountering, encountering the flat-out angry, in-your-face rebellion. Um, it's a rebellion that's rejecting God. Maybe it's rejecting you. Um, you're witnessing destructive choices and dangerous behaviors, and there is pain that is layered upon pain. Um, and that's, that's really, really hard. Um, some of us are watching what I call the slow drift, and it kind of looks like apathy towards faith. Uh, your loved one could be described actually as a really pleasant person. You like going out to coffee with them, um, but at some level, for a myriad of different reasons, they've left Jesus behind. Uh, they might believe in God still. They might say, yeah, he's real, but like, like Peter Payne is talking about in his seminar on Friday, they might be saying, I just don't need him. Okay. They don't appear to care about God, and it might actually bug them that you care that they don't care, right? So there could be some tension that comes around that. Um, then there's actually some wanderers that have made a deliberate and willful decision that Jesus and the Bible are not true. And they might have even embraced a completely different faith construct at this point. Um, they also could be pleasant people and considered successful by some standards, um, but they rejected scripture, like flat out said, no, this isn't true, I believe this instead, and they don't claim Jesus as their savior. Um, I would say the spiritual journey of our son Kevin, he's one of these, up, down, up, down, up, down. Um, but it, part of it, I mean, he's only 26, so there's still a lot of road ahead of him, but um, there's been times where he's been deeply intimate with Jesus and had a really strong faith, and there's been seasons of flat-out rebellion, um, the in-your-face kind. He was actually talking about that season at one point, and he said, yeah, boy, I was in a real hot streak of poor life choices. And that's what it was. It was just one after the other after the other. And I think I asked him, I, I sent him, I just sent him big excerpts of this seminar. I said, hey, because he said, I'll give you my feedback if you want when you're writing this, Mom. So I took him up on it. And I, I sent him these three categories. And I said, where do you think you fall? Do you fall in any of these? Or is it different? Or what would you describe right now? And he says, I'm probably the second one. Just kind of apathetic towards it. It's just not a big deal to me right now. And I went, okay. I just left it right there. It's, this is not a season of um, super big, strong dialogue for he and I at this point. It's just really good conversations where I feel like my job mostly right now is listening. Um, so let's talk about 
depending on what you're going through with your person, what are your responses? What, give me a word or two that describe what you're feeling, what you're experiencing as you are watching or even living with your wanderer. What are some of the words that describe what's going on in you? Despair. Frustrated. Yes. Shock. Yeah. Disturbed. Sad. Concerned. What about what Mark was talking about this morning? Are we fearful? Anxious? How many of you take that frustrated word and extrapolate that out? I am mad. (laughs) Yeah. There's all kinds of different things that are stirring up within us as we're watching the lives of our loved ones unfold. Okay. Um, So I want to look at what these real responses are. And here's kind of how I describe them. These are the top three. I think, and some of you are saying, well, gosh, we just threw that out to you. How did you know that's what we were going to say? How did you plan your whole seminar in advance? And part of it is obviously it's personal experience. But I would say, too, I've done what I call a ton of conversational research because there's no shortage of people in my life that have a loved one who's wandered from the Lord. And I have asked them, tell me what your experience has been like. What have you been going through? How have you been walking this road with them? And these are the the primary responses that I came up with. You've got the the anxiety, the worry, the fear category, um, the frustrated, the anger, the fury over what you're watching, and then the despair, the sadness, the sorrow. Um, It's all of those different things. Then, how are we going to get over to our landing pad? Through transformation. And we're going to talk about what goes in each of those three blue bubbles, okay? It's a transformation process. That's why you're here, right? You want to want what God wants for you in this process. And what he wants to do is transformation from the inside out. Now, um, I think in... You know, if I was talking about these three things, I think it's also safe to say, I hope that none of us are living in this day in and day out. There are going to be moments and seasons where it's acute, but a lot of times, I mean, I was asking my husband about this, because obviously we're on this journey together with Kevin, and I was saying these were the things I was coming up with and saying, what about you? You know, what do you, what's your primary response or what do you think, given where we are right now? And he said, well, you know, uh, he tends to get mad. He says, but I don't live there. And I said, that's important to make that distinction. We don't live there, but sometimes that means we just shift into neutral. And kind of like, let's just be Switzerland with our family experience right now. Let's not rock the boat. But I think if we can look at the opportunity for transformation, rather than being in neutral, maybe there's a transformative process that God's gonna take us to that will even be better than just neutral, okay? Um, So I wanna go through these kind of, we'll go through them one by one. So first we're gonna talk about that anxious place. Um, And I'll tell you this anxiety, that's my personal sweet spot. If you wanna know about anxiety, talk to me because I'm really good at it. Um, the most common scriptures, the one Ariana is, um, talked about in her, um, little thing before her seminar, 
is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is such a tidy verse. It, it outlines so beautifully. Don't be anxious, which acknowledges there's going to be circumstances that will require us to combat anxiety, okay? It gives us a, a solution. It tells us don't stay there. You pray. And then it tells us the result of that solution, the peace of God, the kind of peace that doesn't make sense given what your circumstances are. So scripture tells me that is the desired landing pad, peace. Now, what it doesn't say as we're pursuing this landing pad and seeking transformation is that God's going to say yes to your prayer for whatever is causing you this anxiety. What it does say is that the act of prayer with a thankful spirit is going to result in the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds. And I wish the tidiness of this verse was always lived out in my life. You know, don't be anxious, pray, peace will come. It's true, but sometimes it's work. And I do believe that it is in that hard, heavy lifting work that God does his best work in our lives. And, it, and it's what is going to reside in that blue bubble. And I'm going to get to that. I want to read an excerpt to you in leading up to that from Ruth Bell Graham's book. It's called Prodigals and Those Who Love Them. They have it at the bookstore. It's a really good book. And she's writing about waking up in the middle of the night with her loved one at the front lobe, right? Thinking about it. Please tell me some of you have done this with me. The middle of the night, I cannot fall back asleep because all I can think about is my loved one, is Kevin. And here's what she writes about, um, about this experience. She said, suddenly the Lord said to me, quit studying the problems and start studying the promises. And then she continues on in this paragraph and she um, actually gives an examination of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And she zeroed in on the phrase, with thanksgiving. And she writes this, suddenly I realized the missing ingredient in my prayers had been with thanksgiving. So I put down my Bible and spent time worshiping him for who and what he is. I began to thank God for giving me this one I loved so dearly in the first place. I even thanked him for the difficult spots that had taught me so much. And then this is the part in the book that I've underlined, highlighted everything. It's the money shot. She says, that was when I learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. I mean, that, was, that was a mind blower for me. Because remember, anxiety, I'm good at it. That's my space, right? But as a follower of Christ, I am called to live a life of worship, a life that worships the one true God, a life that is devoted to the worship of Jesus. If I'm consumed with worry about my son, I cannot maintain a posture of worship because my posture is worry. Worship and worry cannot coexist. That's the transformation that needs to happen in our lives. God uses worship to transform us from anxiety to peace. Now, some of you are thinking about your prayer life, and you're going, hold the phone. 
I am praying for my person all the time. I am all about 1 Thessalonians 5.17. I pray without ceasing. Isn't that worship? Yes, but let's dive a little deeper into that, okay? Consider your prayers for your loved one. When you've been awake, like me, in the middle of the night, and over and over, you're just beseeching God to rescue your loved one from himself, to woo her back to Jesus. Now, I tend to be a visual prayer, so oftentimes in my prayers, I will picture myself bringing Kevin to the feet of Jesus. And I just, I lay Kevin down at the feet of Jesus in my prayers. Now, there have been times as well, in all honesty, I have grabbed Kevin and kind of body slammed him, hauled him down to the feet of Jesus. And just my anxiety is acute. And it's like, just lay there with Jesus. And you know, I think I'm just going to curl up next to you at the feet of Jesus. And I just say, Jesus, please bring him home. Do you ever say that, Jesus? Woo her back to yourself. And for a while, that can be a sweet place, curling up next to your loved one at the feet of Jesus. But honestly, if I want to get to that place of peace, at some point, I have to get up and leave my loved one there. And and I envision myself climbing into the lap of Jesus and saying, okay, you've got him. Jesus has her. But Jesus, I'm going to look in your face, and I'm going to worship you and all that you are. And when I look at Jesus, I see loving kindness, and I see mercy, and I see grace upon grace, and I see love. And Jesus, I trust that you are who you say you are. And as I pray that, in the middle of the night, and I'm looking in the face of Jesus, every night, sweet sleep will come. And it's that restful sleep. God wants to transform us from anxiety to peace through worship. He wants to transform us from fear into deep trust through worship. You know, and it's it's all through scriptures. In Hebrews, um, It says in chapter 3, verse 1, that we're to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And then later on in the book, in 12, 2, it says to fix our eyes on Jesus. I mean, it's that visual, I'm going to fix my brain and my eyes. I'm going to fix them on Jesus because then they're not fixed on that loved one that I've placed at the feet of Jesus. I can worship fully and unencumbered. Now, it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews also tells us in 12.1 to throw off everything that hinders us, the sin that so easily entangles us, in order to have our hearts truly and eyes fixed on Jesus. So what else is entangling us besides the anxiety and the worry? Well, that moves us to our next response, that that angry one, the frustrated fury at the choices and decisions that your loved one is making. Now, I've been there too. I'm, I'm actually personally uncomfortable there. Mad and angry are not experiences where I tend to like to hang out. Um, but I have been there. I've been so angry because he is mucking up my vision of our perfect Christian family. How dare he? I mean, you saw the picture. We look great, right? But he's changing the narrative of our family story. 
Now, Christmas and Easter, what do we do with that now? And we all want to come to family camp. And he says, yeah, I love Mount Hermon. I'll come, but you're not going to make me go to the meetings, are you? No, just come. Now, some of you, you have loved ones where the, the anger, it's a back and forth deal. And you've had disrespectful and dishonest and disregarding behavior in your face. And that is really hard. And that causes an anger that you, you can't deny it. it. And the problem is to stay there is exhausting. To stay there is just, it, it, it's consuming and we just, we can't stay in that place. You cannot maintain that for that long. So a counter response to that, where do we want to land instead? Well, because I don't, like anger. It's not an emotion I experience real well. Um, I go to scripture right away. It's really easy to go there because when I have something that's really uncomfortable for me, I know the scripture is going to say something about it. So we have a very familiar story about the wandering and lost loved ones in Luke 15. Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he's telling the story of what we have now called the prodigal son. So there's a man, he's got two sons. The younger son, to use Kevin's phrase, goes on a real hot streak of poor life choices, right? And he decides at some point, you know, it would be better to be one of my dad's servants than to be sitting here with these pigs. And so he decides to return home and beg his father's forgiveness. And we're told in verse 20, but while he, the prodigal son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then we're given this description of the best robe and a ring and this elaborate party that is a demonstration of the most lavish, over-the-top kind of love. Well, it's not difficult to unpack that the father's response to the younger son is God's response to the lost and the wandering. Well, if you think about it for a half a second, I would like to land where God resides. I would like God's response to be my response. I would like to be someone of compassion and lavish love towards my loved one. Now, compassion is defined as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune. So that's kind of the noun version of compassion. But the definition continues stating that the feeling is accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. And that launches us towards the verb of compassion, okay? Now, nowhere in the definition of compassion does it say or indicate that this is only available if the the misfortune is not of the self-inflicted nature. Okay, when we're watching somebody do things like the prodigal son was doing, and it's like, well, that's your own dumb fault. You know, you're experiencing the natural consequences of your choices. And that is not what I would describe as the compassionate response. Um, And it does, in order to embrace compassion, it has to, it runs counter to my desire for rightness, for being right and for wanting lessons to be learned. Again, that is probably not my job. It's probably, um, if it bugs me, that's my problem. When compassion, the noun, and compassion, the verb, meet each other, 
it is demonstrated in this lavishly loving, compassionate father in our story. You know, 1 John 3, 1 says, how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, you know, when John wrote that, it was in a long chapter on the love of God for his children. But I, I like to think, I wonder if he was remembering this story that Jesus told. Because in that audience, Jesus was talking to the sinners and the tax collectors. They were so lost. But he was also talking to the Pharisees. And they were really mad at the lost ones. See, we need transformation. We need to get through this compassion and lavish love. So God is the perfect father. He doesn't need transformation. He's already there. So how do we get there? Well, there's another character in our story of the prodigal son that I think will help us get there. Because this guy did not have the same response as the father. This is the older brother in the story. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. And the dad goes out and says, no, come in. And the older son just tees off on his dad. He is so mad about the unfairness of this whole thing, because he's towed the line, he's lived by the rules, and he never got a party. So I want to make two observations about the older brother's response. The story that Jesus tells never gives us an account of the older brother's anger directed at his younger brother. He's mad at his dad. And I wonder if that's ever been true of any of us. Have we been mad at God about this? Because we did everything right. We took our kids to Sunday school and we brought them to Mount Hermon and we volunteered at their VBS. Maybe you and your siblings, you went to camp together. You linked arms at youth group together. You were going to do this life in Christ together. And now your loved one is so far off the reservation. If you can talk about sports and the weather, you're doing good. Maybe you have a parent that has done a 180 on everything they've taught you. Where's God in all of this? You're mad at God. And you're questioning, you're doubting, you're fist-shaking. It's real, and God's not surprised. He's not hurt. He's not offended by it. He tells you what the father in this story told his angry son. My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. What the father is offering to the lost son, he's offering to the oldest son, to all of us as well. We have to be able to put our anger aside, though, in order to receive it. That's the second observation. Because of his anger, the older brother refused to go in. So he's missing the party. When the prodigal returns, the only thing on the older brother's mind is how unfairly he's being treated. And I'll admit, when I'm in my mad place with Kevin... It's really boiled down to how his decision to leave Jesus has affected me and my perfect Christian family and my reputation of being a great mom because great moms don't have kids who wander. Huh, no, you do too, okay? And remember, that's my mad place. It's not my sad place. 
Because when your loved one rejects your faith, it feels like they're rejecting you too. And I can be mad about that. I acknowledge that to God. I'm, I'm, I'm furious about this whole mess and nonsense, but I need to choose to not stay stuck there. I don't want to refuse the party. And the story ends with this affirmation of the older brother's place with the father and this call to join the joy. What the story doesn't tell us is whether or not the older son took him up on it. We don't know if he went into the party or not. But we do know the father wants the oldest son to experience the compassion and lavish love that is available to him as well. If we're sitting outside the party, if we're not acknowledging the reality of our own perpetual opportunity to be with the Father, and when we're angry, we're not doing that, we have to figure out what do we need to do, what needs to happen in that blue space to get from our anger to the compassion and the lavish love. Now, before we talk about that, I do want to acknowledge that there's some of you that are dealing with a, a situation where you have to erect some maybe significant boundaries in your relationship. Um, so your lavish love might look like faithfully, prayerfully waiting. And that's good. It's, it's harder, but it's good. And you, the thing to remember is you're still invited into the party. But to get from the anger over to the compassion and lavish love, I think a part of it is believing that the party, then the celebration of the lavish love is worth more than whatever I'm clinging to. It's laying aside anything that gets in the way of joining the party of God's presence. Sometimes that's our anger at our loved one or at God. Um, I remember a moment when I actually physically watched this transformation, this laying down the anger happen. Um, it was when my husband chose compassion and lavish love over anger. Um, there'd been another setback. You know, if you have one of your wanderer does this kind of things, you're going to have to deal with this a lot. But Kevin had had another setback in his life. It was during his college years, and he was experiencing some really tough consequences. And honestly, Brian and I were pooped. We were mad. It was like, really? Again? We're dealing with some of this stuff again? And I'll never, and Kevin was on his way home. And I'll never forget when he walked through the front door. And I'm just like, <sighs> when you hear the doorknob turn, <sighs> and I watched my husband get up out of his chair and he walked down the hall with his arms outstretched and he wrapped Kevin in a big hug didn't say anything, just hugged him. And then the tears started to flow. And the conversation that ensued was one of Kevin asking for forgiveness, a desire for repentance and turning from what he was doing to the way of Jesus. And I have to wonder if that conversation would have happened if when Kevin walked through the door, he was met with anger. I don't think it would have. And since I watched Brian do this with the compassion and lavish love, I said, okay, I have to do that too. All right, fine. I will join you in this. And it was good. But you know, that um, transformation can only happen when we acknowledge 
that we need to let go of these things that we're hanging on to. Like our anger, we just have to, we have to set it aside. I remember asking Brian later, I said, was that hard to do? He said, yeah, of course it was. But it was important to do. It was what Kevin needed at that point. So I would call the thing inside the blue bubble laying down our idols. Now we can point to things of idolatry like anger or in my case, maybe our reputation, um, saying all those things are, are easily become idols that, that you know, we need to set those aside. But what about when those things that are idols for us are actually good things? Our marriages, our ministries, maybe hearing that all my children are walking in the truth. What's, what's so bad about wanting and holding on to that? Well, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this about an idol. He says, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning and I'll know I have value and then I'll feel significant and secure. Um, Paul David Tripp has a devotional called New Morning Mercies, and he has, says this about the whole notion of idolatry. He says, we all attach our identity, our hopes and dreams, our inner sense of well-being, and our meaning and purpose to something. We all give the functional control of our hearts to something. Sin reduces us all to idolaters in some way. We all put ourselves, other people, other things, in God's rightful place. Now, for me, I was really struck by this painful truth in my life with my wanderer because I was sharing about some of the heartache I was experiencing with some very trusted friends. And as I spoke about it, I felt my body just tensing and I, I began to cry. And I was um, saying to these sweet friends of mine, I said, I feel like all my prayers for Kevin are so angsty and, and so pleading and so achy, I've lost the joy in my relationship with Jesus. And it struck me that my prayers for Kevin were good, but they had consumed my relationship with Jesus. I mean, to meld Tim Keller's definition with um, Paul Tripp's definition, Kevin's return to Jesus had absorbed my heart and imagination more than God. I had attached my hopes and my dreams to Kevin's return to Jesus rather than to Jesus himself. I mean, it's weird, right? I mean, in this convoluted way, I had made Kevin's return to Jesus an idol. My desire for Kevin to return to Christ was overwhelming and smothering my desire for Jesus himself for me. I had begun to define my own relationship with Jesus by whether or not Kevin returned to him. Now, I needed to express to God my sadness and my anger about the whole thing, but I needed to lay it aside and join the party. You know, Psalm 31, 3 through 4 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who may join the party? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So whether our idol is our anger or our idol is actually our wanderer, we need to let it go. 
because we won't join the party. We cannot be transformed to this place of compassion and lavish love if we're hanging on to our idol because we can't give compassion and lavish love if we haven't received compassion and lavish love at the party. So let's move down to the next response that we have because sometimes, and you'll notice with these, it's sometimes the, it's not like we only experience one of these emotions at a time. And so we're also working on moving over and allowing the transformation to happen simultaneously. So what I find sometimes is the anger gets so hard to deal with and I'm trying to move to lavish love and compassion, but I really just end up falling into sadness because it's hard, to, like I said, it's hard to maintain that anger for too long. And I believe a lot of our sadness and our sorrow over our loved ones really stems from that feeling of absolute helplessness. And this is especially true for you if you're a parent of an adult child. You know, when they're in junior high and high school, I mean, you can ground them. You know, you can keep them under the roof. There, there are other things that you can do to kind of create platforms for um, moving them more towards Jesus or having them, causing them to reflect a little more on Jesus. When they're an adult, sometimes it's, it's really a helpless feeling. We have no power or ability to control the decisions of our loved one. And Paul writes about this feeling of helplessness in Romans 9. He describes this immense sadness that he has over the state of his fellow Jews people that are dear to his heart that have rejected the Messiah. And I recognize a very familiar cry in Paul's words, Romans 9, 2 through 5. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship, Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. I mean, have you ever joined me in this place kind of wanting to bargain with God over the to change the course of my son? I mean, look at what Paul says here. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Paul is saying, I would give up my own relationship with Jesus if it would just mean that my people, the Jews, would receive him and accept him. I mean, that's big. I mean, I remember saying, you know, I had such a loud conversation with God one time. I was saying, listen, God, if you need to give me cancer in order for Kevin to return with, to Jesus, I'm okay. Go ahead. Maybe that's going to be his come to Jesus moment. Oh, my God. I mean, like Paul, I'm dumbfounded at the whole thing because like the, Jew, the Jews that Paul refers to, my loved one has a deep and long legacy of faith. I have struggled with the sense of God's sovereignty and I wished I could just wrest it from God for a minute because I'm pretty sure if I was in charge for just a second or two, everything would work out fine. But thankfully, the sovereignty job is a burden I was never meant to bear. You know, Sharon Hod Miller, she writes for a uh, devotional app called She Reads Truth. And she has some really good words to say about this conundrum that Paul faces in Romans 9. She says this, the relationship between God's power and our free will is a mysterious one indeed. But when it comes to the decision of a loved one, 
God's sovereignty removes a great deal of weight from our shoulders. Namely, we cannot force someone to make the right choice. We cannot yell someone into wisdom. We cannot wrestle someone into agreeing with us. We cannot compel transformation. There is only one who directs the streams of human art, hearts, and that is God alone. And that's where Paul lands too, declaring that Jesus, from the line of the patriarchs, is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. God is helpless, but he is not. Paul is helpless. No, God is not helpless. Paul is helpless, but he is not hopeless. And praise God, the same can be said of us, because that's our landing pad. Hope. To move from sadness or sorrow, we want to be transformed to hope. Now, initially, you're thinking, well, if it's sadness or sorrow, shouldn't I want be wanting joy or happiness instead? And I, I like joy. I think joy is good. But when it comes to my wanderer, I find that it is only my hope in Christ that can then lead to joy. So I aim for hope first. Scripture is full of calls to and promises of hope in the midst of sorrow. One of the most poignant of those is the entire book of Lamentations. Um, it, the whole book is full of expressions of sorrow and sadness because it's written in response to the writer witnessing the absolute destruction of Jerusalem um, in 586 BC at the, at the hand of the Babylonians. And the whole book is just so full of sadness, except for right in the middle, there is a declaration of hope in the face of this just judgment of God. Lamentations 3, 19 through 26. I remember my affliction and my wandering. I remember my wanderer. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. So this movement from sorrow to hope, again, we need to think about what's happening in that blue bubble, in the transformation. Because like the writer of Lamentations, we look at the circumstances and it can be so sad making. We look at the circumstances of our loved ones and we see the, the emptiness in the worldly pursuits. We, witnesses, we witness consequences of disastrous choices and we can be filled with sorrow. That's a normal response, okay? I'm not suggesting we try to ignore normal um, or even fix normal. What I'm saying is I believe we're called to be transformed because Jesus offers us hope. So hope can become normal, okay? But what happens in that transformation space then to get us from sorrow to hope? Well, the best way I have thought to look at it is um, to consider the lens through which we are looking at our wanderer, okay? I've got a fun little photo of a lens here. See how that lens makes everything crystal clear in the distance? When I am looking at my loved one, 
what is the lens? Is it the lens of the circumstances? Are those the first things that we see? And it makes me so sad to look at those circumstances. So I push through those and I'm looking for Jesus in the midst of these circumstances. And I find him and the reality of, okay, Jesus, I am going to collapse on you. Thank goodness you're in charge of this whole mess. And I'm going to hope and trust in you. And I have maneuvered my way over to hope because that's all I've got. And that's clearly, that's not a bad thing. But what if there was another way to do this? What if we started with Jesus front and center? What if the lens in front of us shows us Jesus with such clarity that we are see our circumstances through him rather than the other way around? Do we want to see Jesus out here through the lens of our circumstances? Or do we want to see our circumstances out here through the lens of Jesus? Now, maybe you could say I'm splitting hairs, but honestly, when I'm in the depths of sadness, I'm not up for a wrestling match with all these circumstances. Just give me Jesus. Let me land on the hope that he offers. Let me look into his face. Let that be the thing through which I see everything else. Consider this. I'm looking through this lens of Jesus, and so I see his character. I see salvation and grace and mercy and truth. And then I see the circumstances of my wanderer, so they are bathed in the truth of, that is Jesus. I have switched the lens. That's the transformation that Jesus has for us. That's leading us towards hope. And actually, that's where hope becomes our starting point. It's the lens right in front of us. It becomes the trajectory of our lives, and it becomes our landing pad. The circumstances haven't changed. But with my new lens, it changes how I see the circumstances. Now, I fully acknowledge it doesn't always work that way. Like Mark was talking about, you get one phone call, you get one word, and we can be faced with the shock and awe of devastating circumstances. My sorrow will be acute. I will see those things first. Again, I'm not denying normal, but I believe and experience confirms that if I continue to push the lens of Jesus in his, in his face, front and center, that becomes more habit than work. And it becomes the normal. It becomes where I want to start, and that's where I want to land. You know, God has wonderful transforming work for all of us. And as we consider praying for and moving through, towards these landing pads, through worship, through laying down our idols, through switching the lens. God has these places of peace and compassion and lavish love and hope for us. But in the midst of all of this, and again, I said this seminar is not about your loved one. It's about you. I do not deny how important it is for us to consider our prayers for our loved ones. And so I want to offer you one specific way of praying for your loved one that feels a little counterintuitive. Um, but it's out of scripture. I believe in pray, praying scripture a lot. I use scripture as a prayer prompt so much. And this one comes from Psalm 16, which the whole psalm is um, written by David. And it's a prayer uh, for the Lord's protection. And it's a declaration of trust in God and David's confidence in God um, and his care for him. But tucked in this psalm 
is one verse that describes those who do not trust in God. Psalm 16.4 says, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. As long as your loved one is running after other gods, their sorrows will increase. And in this, I believe we can hope. Because their sorrows will eventually lead them to the end of themselves. It's hard to watch. But we have to consider, can we pray, God, do what you need to do and allow what you need to allow to bring this wanderer home? Amen. Can we end there? Or are you like me who for years I have qualified, and I still do sometimes, qualified my prayers. God, bring him back to you, but please protect him from the dangers of this world. For so long, my brain would spin out of control as I was praying. And you think about it. You consider all the awful possibilities. God, would you protect her from the job firing or the loss of friends? Protect him from the arresting officers, the spinal cord injuries, the unintended pregnancies. You know, your mind cart starts going to all the awful places that it could go. Protect him or her from the bad investments, the bad choices, all the bad people out there. Or can we pray, God, do what you need to do and allow what you need to allow to bring this wanderer home. There have been seasons when, and I still do this, where I pray that Kevin will be miserable. I have prayed that he would not be content or happy or satisfied with his life apart from Christ. And I was sharing this with a father of a wanderer, and he said to me, I don't think I can do that. That feels too hard. And I said, you know, I get that. And I felt the same thing until I did it. It was my last white flag that I gave to Jesus in surrender of my child for the Lord. And, it, and I do still pray blessing over my son. I don't want to say I never ask for that. But I pray blessings of God's character to overwhelm him. God, I pray I bless him with your grace and your, your mercy and your peace and those things that would draw him back to God. Um, so I do have some scriptures also that are for you. I'm going to pass them out here at the end that will take you through this process for you of um, moving from anxiety to peace and anger to compassion and lavish love and sadness into hope. Um, but before we go, I do want to pray for our, our wanderers and pray that their sorrows would increase as they go after other gods. Heavenly Father, each person in this room has someone that they love so dearly. And I pray, God, that each one of these the wanderers that is represented here, I pray, Lord, that their sorrows would increase as long as they are far from you, that they might recognize, that they might come to believe that there is only hope in Jesus, there is only true love found in the love of their Heavenly Father, the compassion that you desire to give to them. Lord, I would just ask that as we walk this wandering road with our loved ones, that we would remain steadfast and firm, that we would have strong centers with real soft edges that allow our wanderers to come to us, to speak with us. God, keep us in good relationship with our wanderers. And Lord, more than anything, keep us close to you. Let us climb into your lap and look into your face 
and see that you are who you say you are. In Jesus' name, amen.